I thought that Susan Rice might be the vice president, but nope, it's Harris. Didn't matter what Chris Dobb thought. I mean, Harris is a black woman. She has a lot of political experience. She's ready to lead America. I'm still concerned about some kind of progressive uprising, but hopefully they'll realize that this election is not about policy. It's about Trump. What do you think, Joshua? Well, Jacob, I'll say this. I'm really looking forward to the vice presidential debates between Harris and Mike Pence. As a former prosecutor, I'm expecting that she'll use her skills to really attack and destroy Mike Pence's credibility and how they'll match up against one another. Yeah, me too. And the other thing that happened was the Israel-UAE normalizing relations deal. I want to make it clear. The only reason this happened is because Bibi, Kushner, and UAE only care about their money and their power. That said, this is a good thing, okay? This realignment of Middle East politics is going to take more time to really get up and going, but this could conceivably work towards a peace deal for Israelis and Palestinians into some kind of out-of-the-box solution that this conflict really needs. I'll say this, Jacob. I also think the UAE-Israel deal occurred because everybody's starting to realize that Iran is the larger friend in the Middle East currently, right? You know, this is one of the first Gulf states that Israel has been able to normalize diplomatic relationships with. Really, I think this is a generally positive development in the Middle East. And I'm glad that the focus is now towards stopping Iran rather than on Israel. Hello, I'm Joshua Graysberg. And I'm Jacob Friedman. And this is Gen Zero's Tough Politics. This is where two members of the next generation of American adults talk about what's going on in the world. Since the whole world is on fire, we might as well take a crack at delivering some insightful, definitely non-Twitter commentary and a side helping of comedy. This episode is sponsored by News Voice. It's an app that takes a community-based approach to news. Users submit links from a variety of news outlets and write headlines and summaries to form accurate and unbiased news stories. The app then takes these stories and categorizes them to your liking. At newsvoice.com VIP, you can get two free months of backer status. With backer status, you get Newsvoice Play, where you can listen to your personal mix of top stories, just like a podcast. When you comment on news stories, you can customize your icon any way you want. And if you stay after the trial, you can get exclusive badges and new features. The money goes to supporting Newsvoice's mission of being an ad-free, independent, community-centered, and user-oriented news aggregator focused on fixing the news for a better, more democratic news landscape. Once again, that's newsvoice.com VIP. And now, back to the show. We would like to welcome Jacob Foster, an, an alum of our high school and a rising sophomore at West Point. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Um, and let me also just clarify before we begin that all my opinions are obviously my own and are in no way representative of West Point or the Army or anything like that. So, Jacob, the first question we have for you is, how would you define yourself politically? And what would you say are your main issues that you vote on? So I'm a political conservative and, you know, one of the remaining adherents of Reagan's whole three-legged stool. I'm generally supportive of a strong uh, foreign policy that's capable of advocating for freedom and liberty around the globe um, and supporting strong measures of personal security and personal liberty domestically and minimizing government influence, religious freedom. That's uh, probably the essence of what I think it still means to be a conservative 
and what it has meant for the past 30 years. And what would you say are the main issues that you would vote on? Generally, probably the biggest priorities of voting for me are actually probably trying to defend American institutions. So, you know, the biggest, big things I care about in elected leaders is obviously issues of character, um, protecting American institutions. So like court packing would be something I'd be deeply, deeply concerned about. Um, but then on more partisan issues, I'm, you know, supportive of a strong foreign policy, limited government, lower taxes, gun rights, religious liberty. And I don't know, I'm a fan of keeping the environment safe, but I also like reducing regulation. So those can be in conflict at times, but that's kind of the issues I'm first to think about as well as more minor things. Like I tend to care a lot about the Uyghurs or ranked choice voting, but those are rarely on the ballot. Does the list of American institutions that you value include filibustering? I wouldn't die on the hill of protecting the filibuster in the Senate just because it's a lot different now than it was originally intended. Uh, But I think whenever you are increasing the speed and ease with which a slim majority in the government can do things, uh, you should recognize it's a deeply risky thing to do. It's certainly, I think, something Democrats learned after ending it for uh, judicial appointees and if you are sincerely committed to the idea of ending the filibuster to try to make laws be passed more efficiently, I have nothing but respect, but I think many people try to use it as just an attempt to increase political power for their party in the short term. So moving on, um, Trump's first term is coming to an end. In general, what do you think his main accomplishments were and what do you think his legacy will be on American politics? So I think, you know, in terms of legislative accomplishments, really the only one that was really large was the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, though that is probably going to be overshadowed by coronavirus. I suspect most of his economic policy will, though he he did make a meaningful dent in the regulatory burden here in America, which I think is an unsung and kind of uncelebrated accomplishment that should be looked at more. It certainly affects millions and millions and millions of people. That being said, uh, I think the coronavirus will likely overshadow most of his legacy. And I think Trump's role in American domestic politics is likely going to be closely related to how hyperpartisan American politics have become. Whether he is, you know, merely a symptom of growing tribalism and internal conflict in America, or whether he has, is the cause or has simply exacerbated the issue is something that I'm not 100% certain about either way, but it's certainly hand-in-hand with American politics from 2016 to 2020 has been hyper-partisanship. And I'm sorry, Jacob, but what do you mean by uh, tribalism? I I think there's a deeply disturbing trend in America of uh, what our quote-unquote tribes are are becoming increasingly political. American political parties are traditionally large and broad coalitions. They're relatively diverse ideologically. I think Pew Research Center has some great data about the average partisan affiliation of a Republican and a Democrat. Like if you put people on a scale of one to 10, from zero being you know, super progressive, 10 being super conservative, Republican Party has moved from, say, a six to an eight, and the Democrats have moved from, say, a four to a two. So I think there's that element. I also think there's worrying trends as ideological differences within parties to disappear and simply just become 
differences of scale and degree rather than kind. So within the Democrats, uh, you know, there's a long long tradition of them being pretty diverse political coalitions. So you look at like uh, Catholic voters or Jewish voters or on racial grounds like uh, Hispanic or black voters often would vote overwhelmingly for a party, but still maintain a distinct political identity from it. So the Congressional Black Caucus often had a lot of very pro-life people, a lot of very socially conservative people, a lot of people who were very anti-immigration, though we're still Democrats. Uh, in the same way, you know, Republicans, you used to have a lot of New England Republicans, uh, regionally distinct from the rest of the party, who were often much more moderate on a whole host of issues. What's that? How many pro-life Democrats are there left? One, two, uh, in the whole House of Representatives? There's just a, a number were primaried this year, and I doubt that there are really any left certainly there probably won't be any left after 2022. So as parties have become strictly and purely ideological, instead of broad coalitions of huge segments of American society, uh, we risk entering a world and a country where politics is the defining difference in our lives. Like there's a lot of great polling data about how uncomfortable or comfortable you would feel with your child marrying someone of a certain sort. And fewer and fewer people are uncomfortable with their child marrying someone of a different religion or a different race, which is, you know, a pretty good thing, but that has been replaced with politics and political proxies. A growing number of Democrats are uncomfortable with the thought of their child marrying a Republican and vice versa. A growing number of Republicans are deeply uncomfortable with the possibility of their child marrying someone who's had an abortion or other political markers. In the same way, Democrats are increasingly fearful and upset by the possibility of their child marrying a gun owner. Um, and any other kind of thing that's a proxy for politics. You mentioned so, that yeah. you support ranked choice voting. I believe Massachusetts is yeah. voting on it. Yes, on two. And what else do you think politically can contribute? What can the federal government do, or, or what can governments do to stop the polarization? And what can we do as a society? So I think I, I, I think the first part of the question, in some ways the most worrying bit, like maybe this is simply, you know, my small government biases speaking, but I think part of the reason we're seeing such growing partisan divides is that increasingly we're kind of losing a normal public square and it's increasingly being decided by government. Like government's playing an increasing growing role in the writing of school curriculums. Like right now with the 1619 project, there's a lot of controversy as some schools are starting to teach it. Some municipalities and counties are starting to deliberately incorporate into their curriculum. Like the state of California is, devising its new ethnic studies curriculum, which has been politically fraught and a lot of see as political propaganda. At the same time, you see, I think it was Senator Josh Hawley is now trying to like defund schools or something along the line that incorporate uh, the 1619 project in their education. Um, so you're seeing as not only is education becoming increasingly, you know, a federalized thing, it, as the federal government's power increases, the federal government becomes a showdown over a whole host of issues. It's no longer uh, going to be decided in small town halls and local municipalities uh, or school boards. It's going to be decided on a federal level, on a state level, and it just adds a lot of weight to our partisan differences. I also think that there's an element of responsibility in public servants that we're often lacking. I, I, I suspect President Trump is a strong example of this, and perhaps the example people would go to first, but he's far from unique or the only one. In a day and age where politicians all have Twitter accounts and go for the hot takes and often disingenuous attacks 
on their competitors and people of other parties, it creates a worrying situation. So that's not really a result of government policy. And I don't think that like you should ban politicians from having Twitter accounts. But I think we should be mindful that it's easier for politicians to, you know, tweet something controversial on a political subject than it is for them to pass meaningful legislation on the subject. And I think that increasingly we're going to give our votes to politicians who say the right thing or, you know, the wrong thing on social media, Uh, politicians who attract the anger and the ire of politicians we really hate, uh, rather than politicians who make meaningful change or progress or safeguard important institutions uh, that we admire. I think the final thing is just a level of empathy um, on an individual level. One of the things I'm most grateful about of going to Gann is uh, it was an overwhelmingly progressive and liberal school where almost everyone I knew was almost certainly more liberal than me, but often more liberal than, you know, 99.9% of Americans. And I think it's a permanent and lifelong blessing that I can always think of people who are far more progressive than me and would have very different views on most political issues. But I can also say that I'm confident are smarter or kinder uh, or more engaged in politics than I am. Uh, And that I think I'm unable in a lot of ways to use the common crutch of our modern conversation, which is, oh, anyone who's disagreeing with me on this is in the pocket of the NRA or anyone who's disagreeing with me on this is just simply trying to safeguard their, you know, progressive elitist privileges um, and is trying to infer that our enemies are hypocrites or been bamboozled by some lobby in unwillingness to confront honest public debate. Yeah, so moving on, as you know, Democrats currently have a very good chance of a total blue wave against the Republican-dominated Senate and the PC after years of struggling to find the party's footing post-2016. What do you think caused the shift? So I think there's an air of inevitability, Um, like in the modern presidency, I think Americans are kind of intuitively recognizing that uh, our politics are increasingly decided on the margins. Like when you elect a Democrat, you're electing the whole Democratic Party and vice versa. Like getting that 50.1% majority in any house means it's just going to be a Democrat or a Republican house, you know, the most conservative Democrat in the House, maybe they're pro-life, but the second most conservative Democrat probably isn't. So if they have a majority of more than one or more than two, it's going to be a very pro-choice House. The same goes for you know Republicans. Um, I think Americans are increasingly and intuitively recognizing that a party that gains control, even by the smallest margin of a House or the White House or you know the courts to whatever degree they've been politicized, is in total power and that we're going to increasingly see this oscillation that we saw where, you know, Obama wins big in 2008, but then it bounces back to Republicans in 2010 and then Democrats win again in 2012 and it bounces back to Republicans in 2014. And, you know, they managed to hold out in 2016, but then it's a blue wave in 2018. Like Americans are going to respond negatively towards those in power. I suspect Biden will win in 2020 more likely than not. And I suspect in 2022, Uh, Democrats are probably going to lose a lot of seats in the House and the Senate, probably irrespective of what the Biden presidency does. But wouldn't you concede that COVID-19 has thrown a whole monkey wrench into this? Five months ago, no one thought that the Democratic nominee 
would be able to stand up to talk about economic issues. But here we are. 30 million Americans are unemployed. 20 million Americans are about to face evictions. The economic argument is turning now against the president. And so would, would, you, would you consider there is a possibility that Democrats could at least not face catastrophic losses in 2022, if, if assuming that they do win, if the COVID-19 pandemic completely alters American life as we know it in the short term? Maybe, but I think the COVID-19 is actually a strong argument for what I'm talking about. Like we're, we're seeing a massive, massive, massive upset in life. Like economically, you know, 40 million jobs lost, um, 150,000 people dead. Like this is the greatest, most upsetting development since 9-11 at the very least, possibly even worse. Uh, it's totally debilitating and changing America's status on the world stage, domestic life. You know, I've been wearing a mask whenever I'm not in my own room. And whenever there's someone who's not a roommate of mine in my room, like, you know, I would have never expected to be doing that. And Biden's leading Trump by, you know, eight or nine points where Hillary Clinton was leading him by six points in the polls at this point last year. We have had a massive global pandemic, like the biggest political wild card you can imagine. And it's shifted the electorate by probably three points, probably not even that because Biden was always more popular than Hillary Clinton was. So it's quite possible that COVID-19, you know, this massive, massive event has not shifted American politics more than a point or two. That should show us just how partisan it's become. But let's say that in uh, that somehow in 2020, Trump, despite, you know, the odds kind of being against him, is reelected to a second term. What do you think his second term would look like? And what would you want to see from Washington during that second term? Look, I suspect it's entirely possible that Trump can win re-election. I, though it's probably not probable, it's certainly a very real possibility. I would hope, honestly, my personal biggest hopes for Trump being Trump would maybe be kind of moderating or more normal presidential language emanating from the White House, a bit of a kind of return to normalcy. I'm not sure if that would happen. That was kind of hoped for after his election uh, in 2016 and didn't really materialize. I don't know if handing people lots of power is a great way to get them to change their behaviors. But on the political aspects, I would certainly hope that the White House kind of rises to the occasion with the growing threat of China, which I think is an, an ideological, a moral, economic, and a military threat to America that we haven't experienced since at least the Soviet Union and could very well be a lot worse than the Soviet Union. Against the Soviet Union, we enjoyed some massive, massive advantages that we do not have anymore against China. And I, I think we should be very concerned. Um, and I hope the White House increasingly reacts to this threat. That's probably going to be as or more important than how COVID plays out. But as you know, whoever gets a second term, they'll inherit one of the largest economic crises that the United States has ever had. How do you think economic crisis, the aftermath of the pandemic in the second term, will be handled by the Trump administration versus the Biden administration? So I suspect um, we've already gotten our first taste of it, of some of the political issues it's going to break down on um, are probably going to be stuff like this unemployment thing we've just seen. Uh, this whole fight over whether or not we should be cutting unemployment benefits to something more, you know, normal. I think there's a real worry that, uh, on my part, that we could see mass inflation. And I suspect 
that is likely more true under a Biden presidency than, say, a Trump presidency, though it may be more just because the results of, say, the Senate election are probably going to be closely tied to those of the presidential election. Basically, I, I suspect the biggest differences will probably be just the levels of government spending. Well, Trump has shown that he is willing to really open the coffers of the federal government to spend here. I suspect Biden is even more willing to. Like, if Democrats had control of all three houses, maybe we would have seen $12 trillion of spending instead of $6 trillion of spending. Both of those are ridiculous sums. Like, the largest, I think, expenditures of a government in human history on literally anything. Like, far more than we spent on, say, winning the Second World War. So I think we're going to see a real risk of mass inflation, especially as American productivity has likely decreased pretty substantially. Yet, overall circulation of money in the economy has grown massively, uh, as well as the debt, though that's probably the lesser concern. I would hope that under a Biden presidency, one of the uplifting things could be, I think, a much more kind of normal and efficient federal response. Uh, maybe this is wrong, but at least my subjective opinion is that there's been a lot of kind of vacillating and changing federal guidelines and advice, starting, you know, with the CDC and the ineffective tests to really inconsistent stuff about masks, uh, even when the federal guidelines changed to encourage masks. Uh, Trump and a lot of administration officials often weren't wearing them. I, I'm optimistic that under a Biden presidency, that wouldn't be the case. But either way, I suspect the economic consequences of the pandemic will be with us much longer than the health consequences of the pandemic. And I think the biggest difference will just be the degree of federal spending, of whether it's massive or whether it's, you know, doubly massive federal spending. If Biden won, what would the Republicans' response be? Well, I suspect they'd be critical of Biden. Would they work with him? Look, it, it depends. In some ways, like if Biden's too successful it erases any chance to. If Biden wins by like 10 points or something or 12 points or something like that, and if, you know, the Senate and the House come up in his coattails, like if you're having Democratic senators from Arizona and North Carolina and Georgia and every, you know, swing House seat in the country, then you're only going to have really died in the wool, like deeply red Republicans. And I doubt there'd be that much cooperation. If Biden, you know, either... If there's a marked difference between the presidential election and downballot elections, or if Biden kind of ekes out a narrow win, like say winning by five or fewer points, um, so like you know winning, you know with 300 electoral votes or something like that, losing North Carolina, uh, or like maybe winning North Carolina but having a Republican senator from there, uh, I suspect you would have Republicans who are willing to work with Biden, at least to some degree. That being said, I think America is probably at one of our most partisan points, maybe since the Civil War. Uh, and that's that's what like regression to the mean is now. Like, I don't think removing Trump from the picture is going to end partisan politics as we know it. Like, you know, yeah, maybe you'll have a couple of Republicans from like Maine and Alaska who will sign on to key pieces of legislation that Biden wants to pass if he's willing to make concessions to Republicans on them. And that could matter, you know, especially if we have a Senate that's like 50-50 or 51-49 with Republicans retaining control. But I think the vast majority of Republicans will still be pretty critical of the Biden presidency. Uh, maybe not as critical as they would have been of, say, a Bernie Sanders one. But I, I don't think there's going to be a ton of political cooperation simply because Trump's out of the picture.
you said that we are we are most likely as polarized as we are to right before We're the Civil probably War. Probably since the Civil War. We're not at the point where senators are killing each other on the floors of the Senate or trying to. Thank God. Yeah, with Charles Sumner. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything that gives you hope? Is there any is there any person, is there any idea, is there any movement, or any, is there anything that caught your eye and you're, and you're like, okay, I can see this working. I, I, I think there's a lot of reasons to be and remain optimistic. Like, you know, the most partisan time since the Civil War is a really big caveat. Like, America is actually a country where our bloodiest conflict in history was literally brother on brother. Like, you know, if you go to Civil War museums, especially those in states that were split, like if you go to museums in like Kentucky, uh, you're going to find a lot of letters from people who literally uh, fought brother against brother. And while I think the Civil War in a lot of ways is as clear a moral referendum as you can get in military conflict, like maybe, I don't know, World War II was a little more black and white. But yeah, I, I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Like I think part of the issue of modern politics is everyone sees themselves as the abolitionists. Uh, like I do think that Americans are using like the moral equivalency of war. If you listen to pro-life rhetoric, I think a lot of Republicans view abortion as a real like, like if you believe abortion is the leading cause of death in the United States, you probably feel a lot like an abolitionist did in the 1860s. If you think that America and the world is about to face an apocalypse, the likes of which humanity has never experienced due to our level of carbon emissions, um, you probably feel a lot like an abolitionist. Um, if you think that the Senate is run full of people who have literally sold them their souls uh, to gun manufacturers in order to like, you know, like blood money, kill Americans on the street kind of thing, you probably feel a lot like an abolitionist. I think that we are in a really disturbing time in terms of partisan politics, but America has been in places that were worse. Um, you know, certainly even like red scares of the thirties uh, was pretty bad. There's America's had a pretty long history and we've come back from far worse positions. I think even beyond that, there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Americans aren't going to simply lie down uh, and disappear. We have a really resilient system. Like we're blessed with the constitution. Uh, like I really fear what our system would be like if we had, you know, a uh, unicameral legislature and uh, we just, the president was elected by the parliament and, you know, Republicans or Democrats were winning, a, you know, 61 out of 120 seats or something and just running wild. I think John Roberts, as much as I disagree with him on a whole host of issues, clearly cares a lot about maintaining the independence or the perceived independence of the Supreme Court. Uh, I think it would have been very bad if we had someone who was the chief justice who was trying to really explicitly push a partisan agenda. And at the end of the day, I think there's a lot of Americans who really value and are invested in the notion of America. Everything from like Yasha Munk just started his, you know, persuasion community to like really commit to free speech. Um, you know, there's inspiring leaders who I think are getting into politics with the best of intentions and intentions that they'll manage to keep. Things I think are bad. I think things are getting worse in the short term. I think things will probably get worse before they get better. Uh, but at the end of the day, I'm optimistic. I suspect in the 2030s or something like that, we'll look back at this as like, oh, it was a bad time. But, you know, the LA riots were bad or oil shortages were bad or 9-11 was bad. But all of these kind of crises America has gotten through before, you know, 1918 flu was a lot worse than COVID-19 is. 
Um, and we got through that. World War II was a lot worse than anything we're facing right now. And we got through that. And I don't think the fundamental character of America or its institutions or its people has changed. I think with the benefit of history and good intentions, I'm pretty optimistic. Jacob Foster, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And we, you know, come November, if you want to come back, no, we're I'd, always I'd, here. I'd uh, be happy to. Certainly. I, I have a few spreadsheets and stuff analyzing the election. So uh, be happy to make some last minute predictions or something with you guys. And Jacob, we wish you the very best at West Point and that you have a much more predictable year. Appreciate it. I wish you guys the best of luck with colleges and such impending. Going to be a weird year of applications and all that, but best of luck. Yeah, you can say that again. And that concludes this episode of Gen Zero Sock Politics. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And send us any and all questions regarding the news or politics, because your questions make the show. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you next time. Thank you.